So remember now, Jesus is ministering up in the Galilee region where he's made kind of his, his public ministry headquarters there in Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus spent uh, a great deal of time up in this region. And it's here that he now goes and he sits on, it says, the, the mountainside. And where, again, just these natural amphitheaters would form where just the voice can carry out alongside the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus just began to teach them. And what a blessing and a joy it must have been just to sit there and hear Jesus teach. And, and not only is it one of the greatest sermons, it's, it's maybe one of the longest sermons. If you ever think you've been under a long sermon here at Riverside. Well, this goes on for three chapters. So we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for a while uh, over the next number of weeks here at Riverside looking through these chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. But people are just there and they're just soaking it in, taking it all in as Jesus is instructing the multitudes in what the kingdom way is all about. The kingdom way. Not talking necessarily about the kingdom, but more so talking about the characteristics of those that are a part of the kingdom. And it's an entirely kind of revolutionary teaching that Jesus is giving. Because it's interesting, as Jesus finished, it tells us at the end of chapter 7, verse 20 to 29, that when he was finished, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished, saying, astonished at his teaching, and they said, for he taught them as one, having authority, not as the scribes. So when Jesus was done, everybody's sitting their mouth wide open, and they're astonished at his teaching, because he taught as one with authority. And not as the scribes were teaching. It was very different. But what was the difference exactly? How did he stand out in comparison to how the scribes taught. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders that everybody looked up to in their day as kind of that standard of right living, everybody looked up to them. Well, these guys would all teach in a way where they would pass on truths and traditions. They would, they would kind of quote what other rabbis say. They'd say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and they would share what has been passed down. But they never spoke in a way where it was just genuinely coming from their own heart. Jesus, however, comes and he teaches not what others have said, but he teaches now a, a word from the Lord in a revolutionary way of this kingdom way. And he spoke this with authority and people were captivated by it. Jesus, you see, is instituting the constitution of the kingdom here in these chapters. These were principles that were meant to lead the citizens of his kingdom that were radically different than that of the world. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, it starts out with the Beatitudes. And Jesus builds a theme here. Notice what we read here in the Beatitudes. We're going to see everyone starting out with these words. What? Blessed. That's the theme that we see here. Blessed is the one that lives this way. Now, that word blessed comes from the Latin word, uh, butus, which means simply, anybody know? Happy. It means happy. That's what the Latin word beautiful, where we get the word beatitudes. Blessed means, and it's the same in the Greek. The Greek word is makarios, which was interesting because makarios is a Greek word for blessed, happy. That spoke of a, a joy and a happiness that was really only reserved for, uh, you know, the gods in a sense. Only that gods could attain to. It was a state of divine joy and perfect happiness. And yet what's so interesting is Jesus now comes speaking to just the crowds gathering, 
to the regular person, the average Joe, he now says, guys, blessed are you when you live this kingdom way. You can receive this makarios, this blessing that you think is so unattainable. This is something that now is attainable to you when you live this way. How many people love being happy? How many people are feeling happy? All right. You know, you can go about conducting your business and you can find yourself running into a lot of unhappy people, can't you? A lot of people that are just cranky. They're selfish. They're unhappy people. And oftentimes that comes by people trying to live in a way where everything goes their way where people want everything to go their way, but what you're going to quickly realize is that the world doesn't function that way. Not everything is going to go your way, which if you're living with an expectation that this is where my happiness is going to stem from, you're going to quickly be unsettled and unhappy. But Jesus looks to point out a better way, a way that will lead to blessing and happiness. And it's a kingdom way. And it's a happiness and a joy that's no longer dependent upon your circumstances. See, so oftentimes we think, we equate happiness, you know, happiness really is dependent upon your circumstances. But Jesus comes and he gives us a joy and a blessedness that goes beyond your circumstances. That's not dependent upon your environment around you or what you're facing, what you're dealing with. It's a joy that is settled in Jesus Christ and in what he's done for you, what we have in him, the future and the hope that we have because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So our joy is no longer conditional to what's going on around us as it is for many people. It's found in Jesus Christ and what he has for us. And it's in living this kingdom way that he's pointing out for us. Now, keep in mind, this kingdom way was not just about, you know, doing the right things. It, it isn't about following a religion. In fact, some people today, they apply the Sermon on the Mount as though this is their religion. This is, this is what's securing me uh, to go to heaven. I just live out what is told me here. Now, remember the Pharisees taught that you needed to be righteous to enter the kingdom. But this righteousness was really, to them, kind of an outward action. It was all about obeying rules and regulations. And what's the problem with that? Well, you can fake it. You can put on a good show. You can, you can, you know, kind of live in a way externally where it looks like you've got it all going on. But yet, God looks to the heart. God looks deeper than just the outward manifestations. That's why the Lord came, and what did he call the Pharisees? He called them hypocrites. Because hypocrite, that was taken from the idea of like an actor putting on a mask. These were all people that were faking it. They were acting the part. They were making themselves look righteous, but inwardly, they were far from God. And so that's what religion does. Religion kind of puts on an outward demonstration. It's like if I, if I kind of portray these things, then, then I should be good. But Jesus is showing something much deeper than that. He's taken us under all of that to really look at the heart. And that's the key to this whole Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Ephesians, or sorry, Ephesians, Matthew 5, verse 20. Look at that with me, verse 20 of Matthew 5. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, hearing that, many of the people would have been going, what? What chance do I have? If 
me entering the heaven means that I need to go beyond that of the Pharisees and the scribes. I am doomed. This is a, the attitude that many people would have had at this point. But what Jesus is showing is that it's not based on external things. It's based on a matter of the heart. Your righteousness needs to come from beyond just your just works. In fact, your works don't earn righteousness. It comes through Jesus Christ. And that's what the Lord is going to be pointing out through the Sermon on the Mount is it's a matter of the heart. Where do you stand with Jesus? Where do you stand in this, in this kingdom way? Now, again, Jesus is not talking about the way into the kingdom, but rather the kingdom way. The Sermon on the Mount is not a way to salvation, but it rather showed us the righteousness of God and our need for it. And that we can't earn it just by our works. We can't find it within ourselves. We need something greater. And so what Jesus begins to do is teach about the character of the kingdom. And like I said, some people have taken the Sermon on the Mount as just kind of like made it their gospel. And then others on the other side of kind of just dismiss it all together and say, oh, it's, it's unattainable. It's kind of for a, a future time. It's irrelevant for now. But this teaching is to be personally applied to us today as citizens of God's kingdom right now. Though there's a, a now and a not yet reality to our citizenship, we are kingdom citizens now, and we await the full manifestation of that kingdom when Jesus returns and establishes a literal reign of Christ on this earth. So Jesus taught that the character of this kingdom was really a matter of our attitude, matter of the heart. It's an attitude. That's why this isn't called the be attitudes or the do attitudes. It's called the be attitudes because Jesus is much more concerned about who we are than just what we do. This is a way that we are to be. But you see, when we take care of our character, proper conduct will follow because right conduct flows out of right character. So this is what Jesus is laying out for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. And we begin to see that as we look at the Beatitudes. In this first section, again, Jesus teaches that this blessed life, this joyous, happy life, that's characterized in this kingdom is about having the right kind of attitudes. And so in the section we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at, at four things. The attitude towards self, the attitude toward God, the attitude toward others, and the attitude toward trials. So again, verse 3 now, we pick it up in the Beatitudes, and this is what we read in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're looking at the attitude towards self. Now, maybe you've read through this before and you go, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what does that mean exactly? Poor in spirit. What in the world is that all about? Poor in finances, I understand. I know what that is. Poor in cooking, I know what that is. Poor in telling a joke, check, I, I can do that, right? But poor in spirit, what are we dealing with in this? Well, you see, again, the Pharisees thought that you had to be mighty in spirit. You needed to, to really be bold and strong. And that was the way to really entering into the things of God. It was putting on an outward display of righteousness or religion in their minds. That's how the Pharisees live. But Jesus teaches rather that the way up is down. It's about walking in humility and recognizing your need spiritually. This is what Jesus means. See, if you were to poll a, a number of people today and ask if they were a good person or not, 
I would say many people would, would assume and, and would claim, yeah, I, I think I'm a good person. And many people today, you talk to people today and even those that claim to be Christians, you ask them, are you going to heaven? Yup. Why are you going to heaven? A lot of people default to that answer of, well, because I'm a good person. I, I try to live a good life. And they think this is what's going to earn them into heaven. They're basing it upon what they're bringing to the table. But Jesus flips that all around here for us. And you see, he begins to point out that we have a spiritual need. That we're unable in ourselves to be good. And to be good enough to earn salvation and to earn heaven. So he says, though, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. In other words, those that recognize their spiritual poverty. Those that recognize, I've got nothing in myself to be right with God. I am poor in spirit. I am, I'm in trouble on my own. I need something great. This is what Jesus says. Oh, you're going to be blessed because why? Well, theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you bow yourself down, when you humble yourself and recognize your need spiritually, well, now that's the way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that attitude is seen in the story that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go in the temple to pray. The Pharisee sat there all proudly and saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this sinner over here and these people there. Thank you that I, I give all my stuff to the Lord. I do all these great things. And whereas the tax collector is just beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, that tax collector was the one that went home righteous because he recognized his spiritual poverty. He said, God, be merciful to me. I'm just a sinner. I've got nothing that I can bring to the table. I've got nothing I can offer up to say, here's why I'm worthy. He says, I'm unworthy but be merciful to me. Jesus, that's the one that's righteous. Like this tax collector, do you see yourself as a spiritual cripple who can hope only in Jesus? If so, rejoice. Be happy in your spiritual plight. Delight in the truth that you are a citizen of the kingdom now and forever when you see your spiritual need. But notice this here now in verse four, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. See, as you discover your sinfulness, the natural progression there is to begin to mourn, to begin to realize, oh my goodness, I thought I'd been on the right path, doing all the right things, and now I recognize I'm a sinner and it's my sin that has kept me distant from God, that's separated me from God. Your natural response should be to mourn and be grieved over that sin. But this time of mourning is not without hope because notice what it says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be what? Comforted. Aren't you thankful that we can come? Our sin is not meant to keep us from God. We oftentimes, we look at, you know, convictions that we have and, and sin has been committed and it causes us to kind of run from God, but it should cause us to run to God in confession and repentance, be forgiven. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We see this attitude of forgiveness and comforting with the, the woman caught in adultery where Jesus pitched up and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
The woman in, in Luke 9, I believe, is like, that comes to Jesus, anointing his feet with her tears because she's so broken over the fact of her sin, but thankful that Jesus has forgiven her. Everybody else is ready to condemn her, but Jesus did not. So people that have found that comfort of Jesus when we come mourning and grieving over our sin. That's what Jesus desires to do. And notice this progression continues on because we're seeing a natural flow here in the Beatitudes that are, are to happen. We recognize our spiritual need and poverty. We, we're grieved over that sin. We mourn. We walk in repentance. But, but this is blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. See, as you come in contact with your sin and you mourn over the fact that you're not whole, you really find that you don't have a lot to be prideful in any longer. You've come to the conclusion, as I like to point out, basically break that in half. You say, me? Eck, gross. I've got nothing. That's, that's genuine meekness. There's nothing to boast in, in and of myself. I'm saved only by the grace of God. But you see, the Lord loves meek people. We oftentimes think of meekness as weakness, don't we? But more accurately, it's strength under control. It's used to speak of a horse when it is broken and brought into submission. It's power under control. Self-control, one of the fruit of the Spirit. Meekness. Moses was meek. In Jesus' only autobiographical statement of himself, he said in Matthew 11, I am meek and lowly in heart. Oh, Jesus was strong. But yet, it was strength under control. Meekness. Now, the world loves to say, listen, if you want to get anywhere in this world, you've got to assert yourself. You've got to, you've got to be aggressive. You've got to lay hold of that prize. Yet Jesus says, the meek are going to inherit the earth. See, you're not going to be giving up anything when you walk in submission and gentleness. On the contrary, you're going to have much to gain. As we enter into that life in Christ, we receive his forgiveness. We receive his righteousness. We receive his salvation. Guess what? We become part of the, the bride of Christ by which the Bible says we're going to reign and rule with Christ in his kingdom, in the millennial reign. We're going to inherit the earth. What an amazing thing that is. I love how Jesus has a way of, of flipping and reversing all the prevalent philosophies of this world. It's no wonder that so many people are feeling like they're in a, in a rat race and getting burned out. They're conducting themselves in a way totally contrary to this kingdom way that Jesus lays out that's going to lead to a blessed, happy, contented life. It's not going to come in you trying to get everything to line up with what you want, with you trying to receive all that you desire. It's about laying yourself down and walking submission to what Jesus has for us. Conducting ourselves in these attitudes that really bring about that blessedness. So we've seen the attitude toward self. Now we look at the attitude toward God in verse 6. And we read there, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now again, those first three attitudes have really been an, an emptying of self. We oftentimes come to the Lord thinking, we got all going on, we're, we're good. Why wouldn't the Lord accept me? But now we begin to realize, oh man, I'm not good. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm poor in spirit. I need to mourn over that. I'm, I'm, I need to recognize, I need to be meek. There's nothing in me that I can glory in. 
So it's an emptying of self, essentially. But what's natural when we are empty, we want to get filled up. The question is, what are you filling up with? Notice what Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness here. Are we hungering and thirsting for that which is of God? Now, what is righteousness exactly? Well, righteousness is that condition acceptable to God. It's that right standing before God. The problem is there are people who have never been filled because they have not yet been emptied. They've not yet recognized that there's nothing in themselves they can bring to God. They're still holding on to things that they think are going to merit their favor with God. And they have not hungered and thirsted for his righteousness because they've not yet been emptied. And thus they've not yet been filled. They're, they're living for self, content with self, and have not seen their need for righteousness. And these are the ones that have not experienced a true blessed life, that inner satisfaction, the life of happiness. And we need to be careful that we're not filling ourselves with inferior things. We can all accept kind of a counterfeit. We can all fill ourselves with things that we think are earning favor with God. I can be, you know, taking my wife out for a nice, lovely dinner somewhere at a nice restaurant. And yet on the way, I can pull through a Tim Hortons drive-thru, pick up a couple maple, uh, Canadian maple donuts and just stuff myself on the way to the restaurant. Get to the restaurant. It's like, no, I'm good, honey. Just go ahead and eat. I'll just sit here and watch you eat. She'll be like, well, that was really dumb of you to do that. You see, I can fill myself with inferior things, but then in so doing, miss out on the greater things that God has for us. And so many people are doing that. They're failing to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want simply your righteousness. And it's not something that we earn. It's something that's given to us through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, when we recognize our spiritual poverty and we surrender all that to the Lord in mourning and grief and repentance and say, Lord, I need you. Well, he takes our sin and exchanges it for his righteousness. How about that, guys? There's no greater deal that you'll ever find. It's not something we work for or earn. It's something we receive by his grace. Hunger and thirst after Jesus Christ. And turn by faith to Jesus and you receive his righteousness. And those that receive his righteousness are truly the ones that are filled. Filled with joy. Walking in that blessed life that he has for us. Again, the progression of these verses is so important. Because when you empty yourself of self, you will have that hunger and craving for righteousness. And it's that which will truly satisfy. And then we see the attitude toward others in verse 7. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So citizens of the kingdom of God are not ones that hold grudges or are looking to get even with those who have wronged them. And so easy to, to do that, isn't it? To, to think of those people that have hurt you, have wronged you. And, and sometimes we get this idea like, well, you know what? They need to recognize what they've done. I'm going to hold on to this grudge. I'm going to hold on to this bitterness against them until they make things right. And we walk around holding on to these things, this, this anger and resentment. And guess what? Are you ever happy in doing so? No. 
it only poisons us all the more. But Jesus has a better way. It's showing mercy. Showing mercy to those. You know, I love that song that, that Matthew West wrote. When he says, the, the prisoner that you really free when you forgive is you. We're setting ourselves free when we choose to forgive, whether the, the person that's wronged us has admitted it or, or come seeking forgiveness. Walk in mercy and grace. Show that to one another because that's a, an attitude of the citizens of the kingdom. And when we do, guess what? You're going to obtain mercy. Now, here's the thing. We're those that have already obtained mercy in Jesus. <clears throat> and we're called to demonstrate that now to others. Look at what the Bible says we received in and through Jesus. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2, 9, 10, But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Proverbs 14, 21, He who despises his neighbor's sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Oh, there's blessing when we choose to walk in mercy. But we need to recognize, first of all, that we were shown incredible mercy and grace when we least deserved it. When we were at enmity with God, when we were separated from God in our sin, he chose to show mercy to us at a time when we least deserved it. Do you recognize the incredible grace and mercy you've been shown in our gracious heavenly father? And when the more that you recognize the grace and mercy that you've been shown, the more that we're willing to pass it on to other people, knowing that, oh, they may not deserve it, but neither did I deserve the kind of mercy that was shown me. It's been said how much mercy you show is almost certainly the result of how much mercy you know. And I pray today that you know the incredible mercy that's been shown to all of us and that we too would walk in mercy because blessed, happy are the merciful because they're going to continue to obtain mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So again, those that have a pure heart are just going to naturally see God all the more clearly. Why? Because there's nothing getting in the way that's distracting or defiling them. What are some things that can distract and defile? Having a grudge against somebody, holding resentment against somebody, and, and refusing to show mercy, where you're sitting there harboring these bad feelings towards somebody. Guess what? That's not going to allow you to go to the Father freely and just openly be like, hey, everything's great, Lord. I just love you. Everything's Jesus says, man, before you come to the altar, make sure you get those things right with other people. Forgive your brother. Seek those that have been offended and, and make those things right. And we do so because man, when we come to the Lord with a, a clean conscience, with nothing distracting, defiling, holding us back, a pure heart, we can just come and rejoice in his goodness and his blessings in our lives. See, if we're merciful and forgiving to others, we're not allowing that root of bitterness to grow inside. We're having a pure heart, that pure conscience. And those are the people that are going to see God clearly. There's nothing getting in the way. And they experience a closeness and intimacy with God because nothing is hindering it. Oh, may that be said of us. For those with a pure heart, we're seeing God clearly. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peace is a wonderful thing, isn't it? 
Don't you love peace? Anybody love peace here today? Peace is a good thing, but it's something that we oftentimes don't experience because we live in a world that's ripe with conflict. Conflicts all around. Conflicts abounding. People that just do not seem to understand or appreciate peace. I love peace. It's not always something that I, I experience on a day-to-day level. Many of you know, <clears throat> we have a cat in our house that my, my wife just adores. My, my wife just, you know, genuinely loves this cat more than me. More, I should rephrase that, more than I love the cat. That's maybe better to say. She loves the cat more than I love the cat. Cat's nice, but I'm like, you know, take it or leave it type thing, right? But, and my wife, if she could have her way, she would have this cat sleeping in our bed like every night with us, you know. The problem is that the cat always seems to end up on my side of the bed to where I can't stretch out, I can't lay down comfortably, and the cat will wake up and crawl all over my face, whereas my wife just seeps there, not knowing anything going on through the night, just saving it. I'm like, why me? She's the one that loves you. Go to her. But without an exaggeration, my wife will ask every night, Can the cat just sleep with us? Can the cat just stay in our bed? And I have to put my foot down and say, there's no way. So just the other night, when the cat was sleeping in our bed through the night, this is all true. Just this week, the cat is sleeping there on my side of the bed again. My wife is sound asleep, and I'm like, oh. Middle of the night, the cat gets up and crawls all over me, plants itself right up on my shoulder, and starts like clawing me, kneading me like I'm a batch of dough ready to go in the oven, right? And I'm like, in that moment, I can choose conflict, or I can choose peace. I want to wake up my wife and say, honey, you got to deal with the cat. This is why I don't want the cat sleeping in here. But I let it go. I chose peace. And listen, I don't share this story with you to say how much of a hero I am. I think you know that already, but I share this story... I share this story just so you can pray for me. This is what I deal with in my home. This is what I have to live with to ensure peace. I, sometimes I'm tempted to say, honey, you've got to choose. It's either me or the cat, but I am not confident in the answer I'm going to get back. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you know, we'll compromise here, but pray for me. But you see, blessed are the peacemakers. This is more than just talking about this environment of peace where we want to walk and uphold peace, you know? And that's something that we should all do, right? As much as depends on you, live in peace with all people, uh, Romans tells us. So we want to be in peace with, with one another, no doubt. But the greatest need that humanity has is to be at peace with God. And we have the extreme privilege now of being peacemakers on a whole other level. Because Romans 10, 15 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring good tidings or glad tidings of good things. We get to be messengers now that get to point people to the way that they can have peace because people are living in conflict whether they know it or not. They are at enmity with God, as was said already earlier in this message. They are at war with God, but there can be peace. And they can stand and experience the peace of God by coming under the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ, by accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior, seeing their, their, that they're poor in spirit. And they need to repent and mourn over that and be filled with his righteousness. Suddenly, they can be recipients of the greatest 
peace of all. But we all get to be peacemakers by not just living in peace with one another, but by sharing this message of peace with those around us. That's a good attitude to have towards others. But lastly, we look at this attitude towards trials. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You would think that the world would love to hang out with people that are living in this kingdom way, right? With all these qualities and characteristics. Poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meek, seeking rightness, merciful, pure in heart, a person of peace. You would think that the people of this world would just desire to be around people like that. Yet Jesus says they're going to persecute you. I can just imagine the disciples perking up at this point. Did, did, he, did, he, say, did he say pampered? Please tell me he said pampered. Did he say persecuted? Oh my goodness, right? Jesus elaborates on that. He says in verse 7, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Now why is the world going to persecute people like this? Because these attitudes are so opposed to the world's attitudes. The world system is in direct conflict and contradiction to the kingdom way, this way of God. Those that are of God are called to be separate and different from the world. But the key is to be different because of righteousness. Not just for the sake of being different. Don't go out in the world and be weird as Christians. But stand out because you're living for the things of God. And you're allowing the Lord to reign in your life to where you want to be truly, genuinely the citizen of the kingdom in this kingdom way. But you see, when you live that way, that's going to right away begin to poke and prod people that are not living that way. It's going to bring conviction. They're going to call it condemnation, but it's conviction. They're going to recognize that they're not right in how they're living that they're missing something. There's that moral compass that everybody has given by God that they're going to see. They're not living up to the life that they can be and should be to earn favor with God. And instead of receiving it and going, I want what you have, many are going to want to silence it in persecution. Are you ready to face persecution for living a life that's so contrary to what the world says is the way to live. But notice what Jesus says. He ends the same as he began. He began in verse 3 saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here again, he says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If there's one thing I would wish for everyone to get a handle on, it's this. We're not living for this world. We're citizens of heaven. And if we can live with an eternal focus, we'll realize that these present problems and pains are only temporal. Paul had a good handle on this when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, Jesus says, guys, it's not gonna be worth it. When you're persecuted, and, and notice, you're gonna be persecuted for my sake, he says. Jesus would say elsewhere, the world will hate you because it 
hated me. It hates me. That's the source of that persecution is it's anti-God. And when we're living for God, you can be assured that the world is going to come against you. And they're going to do it because of Jesus. But he says, great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. You see, it is all going to be worth it. No matter what we experience in this world, there's going to be greater value in the world to come by which we're going to say, you know what? I would go through all that 10 times over knowing what I'm receiving now in glory with Jesus. It's all going to be worth it. I think about the apostles in Acts chapter 5 who were brought under the council of the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. They were told not to preach the gospel. They were released under Gamaliel's advice after they were beaten. But it says as they were beaten and released, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Isn't that amazing? Is that an attitude that we can have? See, the blessed life that Jesus points out was so foreign and contrary to what the world valued. It's even more so today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We live in a world that's so contrary to the things of the Lord, to the things of God, to what is valued in an eternal perspective. But Jesus lays out this kingdom way to show us the path to the blessed and happy life. Are you feeling blessed today? What areas or attitudes need to be altered in your life to see yourself be aligned with his kingdom more? May we pray for the Lord to do that work in us. And may we continually yield ourselves to him and say, Lord, I want to live this kingdom way because that's the way that ultimately leads to blessedness, to joy, to true and lasting happiness. It's in this kingdom way. Let's put that into practice and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we desire to live these lives all out for you. And Lord, we know that we're not <clears throat> promised that it's going to be easy, but we are promised that it's going to be rewarding. And we thank you for that, Lord. So help us here today to recognize just our need for you all the more and to live in you. And that we would no longer be living these lives for ourselves, but we'd be living for you, for your glory. And to be living this example of this kingdom way, the characteristics that the citizens of heaven exemplify. Lord, help us by your spirit to live these things out, to put them into practice. Not out of works or to earn righteousness, but because you've already made us righteous. And we want to walk in that way. So we thank you for the life you've given us. May we live it out loud and strong and enjoy in you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.